got a million dollars. Hot dog! I'm Joel Volk and welcome to Small BizCast, where twice a month I explore the lives of small business owners to dig a bit deeper and explore strengths, weaknesses, ideas, and challenges with blemishes and all. Jay Rosen of Affiliated Monitors is an expert in business ethics and compliance. He's seen it all and has some great stories. As you listen to Small BizCast, you will find comfort in knowing that you are not alone. Hopefully, you'll find inspiration and ideas from the people I introduce you to, like Jay. Hopefully, you'll laugh a little too. Hot dog, it's a wonderful life. I'm going to just throw a little riddle out, a trivia, but give some people's trivia who might be listening. So what does Anna Reeves, Robin Williams, and George Clooney, and me, Joel Volk, have in common? I, I I don't know if I made a movie with you, but I made a movie with all those three guys. Right, so we're, we're doing a show together. <laughs> I think finally, finally, I'm in the social position that I've been seeking my whole career. So go ahead. I didn't want to let that moment pass. Not be able to no, no, that was cool. I grew up in a place called Manchester, New Hampshire, which is north of Boston. I was supposed to be in the family shoe business. So my dad and his uncle, Uncle Wolfie, we talked about, uh, they had a chain of retail shoe stores and they were named after my dad called Mort's. And the concept was that where I grew up, Manchester, New Hampshire, was a mill town. So in the early 1900s, they made textiles there. Right. And then in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s, when the textile business went overseas, they turned to shoe manufacturing. So if you imagine all these great big brick factories built alongside the Emskeg River to take advantage of hydropower and build, uh, rather, they built their shoe manufacturing into where the textiles are made. And the concept was that every town in New Hampshire and Massachusetts that was a mill town had a mill yard like this, and they thought their concept would be to open up a discount shoe outlet in each one of the factories. And what they would do is sell factory defects in seconds. Right. So my dad became partners with my uncle and the first store they opened up was in Manchester, New Hampshire. So they moved there and I was born on the main street, Elm Street. And uh, I went to school in Philadelphia at the Wharton School of Business. And when I was there, I got bitten by the entertainment bug. And I started uh, working at the student television station called UTV. And I went from lowly PA all the way up to head of the station manager. That made me start thinking about the entertainment business. And I've uh, gotten a lot of good business advice from my dad along the way. And the first juicy nugget he gave me when, when I was considering what I was going to do after college, he said, Jay, when you get up in the morning, you better love what you do. If you don't love your job, you're shit out of luck. So he said, you go to Hollywood, you see if you can make it as a big star and take it from there. Okay. <laughs> so, um, you know, I came out here and I, I just think of someone, so many kids who I went to college with. And there's one uh, gentleman, uh, particularly he was from Pittsburgh. And uh, his grandfather and father had the eponymous law name of Lebovitz and Lebovitz. And my friend Stephen had to go back so the firm could be Lebovitz and Lebovitz and son. <laughs> and I don't think he wanted to be a lawyer, but it was impressed upon him that he needed to carry on in the family tradition. So I just feel so blessed that my dad has was supportive of myself and both my sisters and whatever career choices they made. And although the shoe business put a roof over our head and food in our bellies. We were told that the business was there if we wanted to be a part of it, but we didn't have to be a part of it. Right. So let me ask you just a clarifying question. Just curious about how you perceive that that challenge from your father that said you're SOL if you choose the wrong profession. Do you think he was saying that because he realized that although he built a business that put food on everybody's plates, that he was unhappy every day going to work and running his business? Or do you think he was saying the opposite, that he created something for himself? It was, uh, it was, it, it may have just been shoes, but it was his shoes and his company. And so he was joyful to go to work and he didn't want to see you miss out that pleasure of being an entrepreneur and successful. Yeah, it, it's, it's definitely the latter. He looked at that as a positive and just another thing, another lesson I learned in business and just 
how to be a mensch or a good human being is that I noticed that when salespeople would get laid off or fired, that one of the first places they would go would be to go to my dad's office. And he would say, oh, well, you know, this guy was the Nike salesman and I'm going to introduce him and he'll become the, the Timberland salesman. And I said, dad, uh, I don't get it. What's the play here? What's in it for you? Why are you helping these salespeople get jobs when they get fired? And he goes, well, one might be sarcastic and say that, you know, I've got a pre-existing relationship with them. So I might be expecting better terms, you know, when I'm buying stuff from them, but that's not it at all. It's like, it's the right thing to do. If somebody loses their job, they have the family they need to support. And it's just good human business to do that. So once again, you know, I, I think you can kind of see the, the type of man he was. He was the kind of guy that would talk to a brick wall. He'd pick up somebody on the golf course and, you know, say, hey, can you let us Northern Jews pass through? And, you know, you Southern Jews are playing too slowly. And then he would be best friends with this man for 30 years and go to his son's bar mitzvah and his other daughter's wedding. So those are the type of relationships my dad would forge with people. And it would be, you know, over the smallest little thing, but he really enjoyed people. Mm -hmm. He enjoyed con conversing with people and he enjoyed helping people. And it was only because of it was an ends into itself. There was nothing else attached to it. And we were just talking about earlier about, you know, are people cynical today? I don't know if if that is something that most people would practice, especially if they had to take the extra step and find out what political or religious affiliation a person was, and maybe they would or would not help somebody based on whether they're red or blue. That's one of the questions that comes to mind. And, you know, my, my natural default is to talk to strangers. I, if you ask me what my hobbies are, I'll give you a list of a few, but talk, talking to strangers is always one of them. And um, it has been harder the last several years. There's no, no question about that. It does make me sad that, that you have to filter yourself a little bit more than you ever did based on, on what your political affiliation might or might not be. So I, I'm with you. Your father's trait of being able to make friends that quickly, do you think that's something that can be taught? Or do you think that's something that's just inherent? Or do you think it's, I mean, obviously your father was, in, it was inherent, but do you think you must have gotten that from his modeling? But do you think someone that doesn't have that naturally can be taught that that trait? Yeah, I mean, you know, one, one of the things that I try to help people with, people who are in the ethics compliance industry, is doing networking. And especially now in the time of the pandemic, uh, it's you need your network before you get fired or before you get have to look for in the next job. Right. And people sometimes only think about building that network when they need something. And you need to have this kind of safety net built along the way. And um, I remember being on a golf course, being told that little boys are to be seen and not to be heard. Hmm. So, you know, you never really piped up or you never said anything until somebody had a direct a question for you. And what that meant is I did a lot of listening and a lot of talking in my own head. And then I tried to understand adults and I tried to be part of the conversation, but only be a part of that conversation when I was invited in. So I kind of took that and helped people. People, sometimes they get really um, just overwhelmed by being in a room of strangers or having to be on a Zoom or a webinar and not know who people are and you know how do you kind of make that first move and how do you get people to be talking to each other and a couple of the strategies I've used is one when I go to a networking event I think it's my party yeah and I want to make sure to introduce people who I know to other people there and suddenly instead of having these groups of ones or twos you now have a group of people participating in a conversation. So that's one strategy there to like make like you're, you're the host and introduce everybody. And then another thing, and I'm sure you use this in your podcast, is people who ask questions are thought of being great conversationalists. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I'm not a great conversationalist at all, but I'm going to ask somebody about one of their favorite topics, which is themselves. And I'm going to ask a few questions about their career or the book they read or the movie they did. And the next thing, 
I can take 15 or 20 minutes off and just enjoy getting to know somebody and then maybe ask a couple questions, but it's just kind of like getting the ball rolling. And those right. are things that maybe sometimes I don't feel like networking with somebody at an event, or maybe I don't want to do this, but I still kind of just go out because I have had some of the biggest deals I've ever made in my career made in an elevator or made in a restroom. And it's like, you meet somebody at a co conference, right? And it's like a big, important lawyer at a law firm. And, you know, you're, you're both washing your hands together. And it's that awkward thing. What do you do? Do you shake or do you say hi? But, you know, by if I had been 20 seconds earlier or 20 seconds too late, I might not have met this guy and I might not have made that deal. So I think yeah. you always have to put yourself in an opportunity. You don't have to go through with it, but at least put yourself there. I mean, you're flown all the way to Vegas. Just go spend 20 minutes and network with somebody and you don't know who you're going to meet. Yeah, I, I, I didn't interrupt you because I couldn't have said any of that better myself. I too have deliberately put myself in the role of being the host. Uh, if someone were to come to my house, I didn't know I would invite them in, make sure that they know my home is their home and see if I can make them comfortable in some way including introducing the people. So I, I deliberately take that action as well. And uh, I agree, you know, ask questions, be inquisitive. You know, if those of us are in sales, you know, sales, sales really is solving. Solving comes from understanding. Understanding comes from asking questions and asking questions comes from caring. So there's a direct through line between caring about people and making sales. And, uh, and you don't have to be, you shouldn't be phony about it. You should just be with, you know, ask questions that interest you. So that's genuine and, and be engaged and be curious. I, I, I know I did not say it better than you. You said it perfectly. So sorry for, <laughs> sorry for uh, reiterating your words, not, not quite as effectively as you. So take me through the rest of the story then. So how did you get to the business you're in now? It's such a departure from entertainment. All right. So uh, 1.0 was working in the mailroom at a talent agency called Triad Artists, which got uh, absorbed by William Morris and is now known as William Morris Endeavor. And after that, uh, I went to another talent agency called International Creative Management, ICM. And um, I was just telling this story earlier today to some folks who are reformed entertainment people like myself. And I was telling them that the last day I was at ICM, I was walking down the hall and saying goodbye to some friends. And there was a senior agent there. Her name was Martha Luttrell. And she came up to me and she said, Jay, uh, uh, don't be sorry that you're leaving because you're too good for this place. They don't deserve you. She gave me a big hug and I laughed and put a smile on my face. And, uh, you know, it, it, I, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Swimming with Sharks. Uh, with Kevin Spacey, but you know, I think everyone unfortunately has had stories like that. I right. didn't have a cup of coffee whip, whipped at me, but I've had, uh, you know, had to get up at six in the morning to go pick up somebody's dry cleaning at the French Laundry on Sunset Boulevard. <laughs> so, um, doing all that stuff, uh, entertainment or the talent agency business wasn't for me. Maybe I had too many scruples, maybe not enough, who knows. But that gave me, and I think a lot of people still use that as a way to enter into the entertainment business because you learn who is who, who are the writers, who are the studio execs. Uh, after that, I went to work at 20th Century Fox from 92 to 96, and I helped supervise 13 motion pictures, including Speed and Mrs. Doubtfire that were back-to-back. And then after that, I um, worked at twenty at Warner Brothers. And the last movie I worked on there was The Perfect Storm with George Clooney and Mark Wahlberg. So while I was doing all that work at the studios, I was working with a writing partner. And in a period of uh, about six years, we did uh, seven or eight screenplays. We optioned three of them. One, wow. we got paid to write. Then we got paid not to rewrite. And then the rights reverted back to us. So my Hollywood adventures were from about 87 to 2000. After I worked on The Perfect Storm, the group I was with were going to England to work on the first two Harry Potter movies. And I thought I was going to have an opportunity to join them in England, but I wasn't invited along just due to uh, capacity constraints. So at that point, I figured, well, you know, I've done pretty much everything I wanted to do. I think I, I need to have a new challenge. And there are some 
guys who had gone to Penn with me that were opening up a middle market investment bank called Focal Point Partners. Okay. So I had an opportunity to join them as a vice president of business development. And I figured, well, that's pretty cool. You know, I've been kicking it around the entertainment business for 13 years. And now I get to join an investment bank in a sales position and being a vice president. So I worked with them up until uh, 2008 when the market crashed. And uh, I just had baby twin girls born in February of 2008. The market crashed in 2010. And the guys at Focal Point said, look, you know, everything is going to be coming in here is going to be distressed. We don't need anybody trying to go, you know, sell opportunities here because everything's going to land at our doorstep. We know you have the family that you're trying to raise. So it's October now. We're going to give you a severance until the end of January and go out and find your next job. And, you know, nobody likes to lose a job. Uh, and, you know, at first I, I didn't feel very good about it. But I realized that they did me a solid by giving me that opportunity. Right. And uh, while I was looking for work and right until my unemployment ran out, I had an opportunity to join a company called TransPerfect. And at the time, they were the world's largest privately held translation company. But what I was helping them do is they had some technology called a virtual data room. So Imagine if you're doing an M&A transaction and you go into a conference room and you have all these banker boxes and you do due diligence. This was a way to do it electronically. So okay. you never had to, and it'd be perfect for what's we've gone through here with the pandemic because now you can just digitally exchange those files. You don't need to physically go through the banker's box. So what their concept was, they felt that the Hollywood studios could use a secure way to exchange screenplay assets and it would keep it from. What year, I'm sorry. What, in, what, what year was that, Jay? Uh, this was in 2008, 2009. Okay. So think about like a MacBook back then was like 10 or 12 pounds. Right. So although you could send the screenplay and you could digitally watermark it, right. and you could make sure it could only be opened by somebody who it was sent to, the problem was that Joel Silver or Scott Rudin or one of these big producers was not going to schlep a 12 to 15 pound computer to their estate in Malibu and read screenplays. So in essence, you'd still have to, even if you sent them the digital screenplay, they'd have somebody print it out and then they'd physically read it. So we had the technology and we had a solution and Warner Brothers was ready to move forward with it. But then at the end of the day, they took a look at how much loss they had from people stealing screenplay assets, and they felt it wasn't worth the investment. So two postscripts, about six weeks later, the people that I was supposed to be with at Harry Potter, uh, somebody was out in the cast and they got kind of schnockered at the pub, left their screenplay underneath the booth, and somebody found it. So that was number wow. one showing well, maybe the use case still existed. And what happened was several years later, when you had the advent of the iPad, Warner Brothers internally developed that solution. So we had the right technology, but we didn't have the right hardware. So from being with TransPerfect and helping them sell this um, virtual data room product, I started to say, well, if I'm working at the world's largest translation company, I might as well learn how to sell translations. Okay. So I figured out how it all works. And it's basically translations are sold by the word. So if you have right. a thousand words of Spanish and it's 14 cents a word, then that costs $1,400. Right. right, right. And what happened was I got involved with a, a consortium of people, uh, a law firm, a forensic accounting company, and they wanted to sell an end-to-end -end solution that if you were doing e-discovery, you would ingest the documents, you would parse them, you would find duplicates, and then you would classify them. And then at the end of the day, you might have documents that were in French or Spanish or Arabic or Hebrew, and those would need to be translated. So I was that part of the solution that would handle the translations. And sure. the, the solution never took off because it was five or six different partners, but nobody ever had any skin in the game. 
Okay. So if there wasn't any money for advertising or there really wasn't um, any type of rule to say that you needed to use these partners, it didn't really move forward. But I used it for the opportunity that I could sell translations to any one of those partners in the situations. But now here's where we get started to get closer to my ethics and compliance thing is that when we were having the closing dinner for the solution, they said, this solution should be used for every FCPA matter. And I dutifully shook my head like I knew what FCPA was. Right. I didn't have a flipping crew. So I went home, typed into FCPA in the Google machine, and it came back and it said Fairfax County Parks Administration. Perfect. Said, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, I said, no, I said, it's oh. got no, no, nothing to do with my Mochatunum who live in Virginia, but I better check again. So then it's. Wait, 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 wait. Hold on a second. Not everybody is going to know what that means. What's Mochatunum mean, please? What, what do you think it means? I think it means your wife's parents. Yes, my in laws. Right. Me. It's a Yiddish <laughs> expression for your wife's yeah. parents. It's but. Just, so much money shocking as this may seem not every one of the people that listen to this speak yiddish so uh, okay well, go ahead sorry about that now, now they can get their cle for a tenth of a minute of yiddish but since you are an expert and a former professional in the translation field it seemed only appropriate that we yes <laughs> okay. so um the foreign corrupt practices act was something that came about when you and i were Younger men and it was the quite, FCPA. Say it again. Is what? Yeah, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Corrupt Practices Act. Okay. okay. So this was in the wake of Watergate, when people did not trust the government and did not trust companies. So this Foreign Corrupt Practices Act was something that was passed to try to instill confidence in the companies in the US. So there were lots of issues with military companies that if you were gonna sell planes to Saudi Arabia, you might have to build a, uh, a school in a certain neighborhood or you might have to pave a road. But unfortunately, there was lots of military sales that were tied to bribery. So the FCPA came in and said, look, you need to have a level playing field. And if you don't, and if we catch you that you're bribing countries to sell your business, you're going to get in trouble. What happened was the Department of Justice uh, started enforcing this law. It really had to do with kind of just reestablishing how the U.S. was perceived overseas. So that's in the wake of Watergate. Let's say it's the early 80s. So for about 20 years, it goes by and this law is not really heavily enforced. But okay. suddenly we start seeing again that there are companies who are forgetting why this law was passed and what they're going to do. And one of the big matters that happened around there in the early, two, early to mid-2000s was Siemens got uh, tagged for, again, uh, Siemens is a German electronics and power company. Right. They were found guilty of uh, bribing different countries to buy their wares, and they were the largest FCPA settlement at the time for $1.2 billion, billion with a B. Right. And that 600 million was paid to U.S. authorities and 600 million were paid to German authorities. Didn't Toshiba have a similar problem about that time? I, I'm not sure if it's Toshiba per se, but I wouldn't be I wouldn't be surprised, you know, if you have a diversified electronics company like that. Right doing nuclear power and things like that, it, it would make sense. Right. So um, what happened yeah. was I'll the, validate US, the U.S. government found that not only was this something they could do to try to improve uh, the business atmosphere, but it was also a great way to fill the coffers of the U.S. government. So suddenly it became more advantageous to uh, enforce these laws. And then there were certain sweeps by industries, whether they were looking at power industries or the automotive industry or the airplane industry. So the way these two things collide for me is that I'm realizing that if a company is being investigated for foreign bribery, there is a high probability that the documents that need to be looked at are in a foreign language. 
At the same time, if a company needs to bring on a monitor and they need to rewrite their ethics compliance program, they might initially write this in English. They might have their law firm come up with the policies and the procedures, but then the next thing they need to do is have these translations checked with their in-market companies. So okay. send them to Paris and send them to Brazil and send them to different cities. And what happens is, is internally, the company needs to read the translations. And sometimes there's idioms or sometimes there's different things that, you know, it was just set away locally. So you need to do that. So an example of a client of mine that didn't have there wasn't any FCPA problem, but it was just as a nature of their business, they had to communicate. They had um, operations in 80 different countries in 42 different languages. Okay, so they wow. would ask me and they'd say, Jay, you know, we're revising our ethics and compliance program. And we want to know when we talk about bribery, should we say that X company has zero tolerance for bribery? Or should we say, because we do business in the United Kingdom and they have a UK VA, United Kingdom Bribery Act, should we say that we do not have any tolerance for bribery because we subscribe to the UK VA? And then, so my answer was, well, you want to have zero tolerance as you know a decision-making um, concept it makes more sense to talk to foreign people in your country or rather not foreign, but people who live in other countries, they're going to feel more of a kinship to want to follow a law because it's their local law. Because if it's the law of the US, they're going to say, screw that. We're not going to do it because mm -hmm. Uncle Sam wants us to do it. Right. So suddenly that conversation became a lot more interesting to me than deciding I was selling Spanish for 14 cents a word and Arabic for 22. Right. So I started to become more involved as a layperson in the ethics and compliance industry. And I would go to conferences and I would write blogs and I would do podcasts. And suddenly, you know, after about 10 years or so, uh, people actually come to me for my opinion. So I, I, I like the fact that if you look at all these different top twists and turns, entertainment, investment, banking, translations, we haven't even gotten to ethics compliance yet, but in an almost three decade career, I was able to pivot multiple times and use just my smarts and my hard work to figure out and become successful in different industries. We're going to take a short break and be right back. Welcome to our new sponsor, Jorgensen HR. Jorgensen HR believes that an employer's workforce is the single key to customer satisfaction, reputation growth, profitability, and the ultimate success of the company. Jorgensen HR works to ensure that employers are in compliance with federal, state, and local HR laws and helps assist them with almost everything else HR. Driven by passion and guided by expertise, Jorgensen HR. Please remember to mention Small BizCast when you call 661-600-2070 or visit them online at jorgensenhr.com. You may remember Janice Miller of Miller Haga Law Group from our episode, Saving Nigel in season one. Miller Haga supports businesses of all sizes from large to small. No matter what phase your business is in, from startup to wind down, Miller Haga Law Group acts as your innovative general counsel. Their experienced team of lawyers will keep the gears of your business turning. If you want to minimize your liability while maximizing your profits with competent and efficient counsel, contact MillerHaga.com for more information. That's MillerHaga.com. Small BizCast is proud to support Fit for the Cause. Fit for the Cause is the leading organization in fitness for low income and special needs communities. Founded in response to the national health crises, Fit for the Cause has used licensed and COVID conscious trainers to keep their members active even during the pandemic. Offering physical training, nutrition, and a variety of classes, members benefit from the same resources given to Special Olympic athletes. So stay active now by going to www.fitforthecause.org. That's fit, the numeral four, thecause.org. 
If you know of anyone who feels lonely on their way to the top, I can help. Hot Dog Business Growth is for companies of all sizes. For people new to business, we offer the Pay It Forward Roundtable, a monthly half-day panel discussion with your peers, coupled with one-to-one private counseling with me. This is super affordable and the best OJT you'll ever get as you learn to grow your business. For the more seasoned, Hot Dog Business Growth offers counseling for leadership and teams. We offer sales strategies and team synergy, as well as customer service assessments and training. Our decades of business experience is on tap for you and your team. Schedule your no-obligation conversation at hotdogbizgrowth.com. We are back speaking with Jay Rosen of Affiliated Monitors. So ethics within corporations that are fluid, depending on which culture they do business in, is, is really a deep topic that I can really ask a lot of questions about. So first of all, before I do, I just want to tell you, I was referring to the Toshiba Kongsberg incident where, where secrets were given. Toshiba had secrets that were owned by the U.S. government that they divulged to the Soviet Union based on software that they were providing. So that's what I was referring to. Oh, okay. I would look, I would encourage anybody to read Toshiba Kongsberg incident on Wikipedia and globalsecurity.org as a, as a reference. So um, that's what I was referring to earlier. The reason I, I say that is because I want to be accurate. I try to not say things that I'm not, <laughs> not sure I'm I right. And I, I, I might have done that by my flipping comment earlier. I just remember earlier in my career when I was in office automation, Toshiba was a, a, a major supplier, still is. And I remember being at a conference next to, uh, and Toshiba had the booth next to the Olympia. Uh, and somebody made a comment of, "Look, the 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 spies are the, the spies are now talking to the to the Germans." And it was kind of a a, a a faux pas that they made. And I just remember that so clearly at, at the time. And it was like the the late 1980s that 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 occurred. So so that's what stuck in my head. That's why I bring it up. And it has no relevance at all to our conversation. But talking about fluidity of ethics, this must be something that's on your mind at all times. And I'm curious how leadership discusses that type of thing. If there's certain cultures, bribes are just part of the culture, correct? And and yeah. and, and other and then then they might be doing business in other com- countries where bribery is just never even thought about, at least overtly. So. I'm just curious how you're how you get involved with those discussions and and decisions. Well, it's 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 a great question to ask, and you know what happens is is that there's two situations that we really kind of conduct our business in. The reactive part of our business is X company gets charged with bribing potential clients in a certain jurisdiction. They uh, go, there's a situation where they have uh, an investigation and they're working with the Department of Justice and the Department of Justice says, we're going to make a plea deal with you, either a deferred prosecution or non-prosecution. And in order to do that, what you need to do is pay back a disgorgement. So any ill-gotten gains, then you have to pay back any fines. And then the last thing they're going to do is they're going to say, uh, conditionally, you need to be under a monitor for the next 12 to 36 months. So at that point, what happens is the company that's been charged by the government has to go out and find three options to be a monitor. At the same time, the government puts together a list of three names. And if you're on both lists, you're the winner. I see. So that's that happens. We call that reactive because the monitor is coming in due to a government regulator, whether it's the Department of Justice, the EPA, the FTC, the FCC, any kind of alphabet soup. We've also done work for suspension and debarment work for the military. So that's the scenario number one, which is monitor due to a regulator. Situation number two. Before you jump to number two, let me just ask a couple of questions. How how big of a market is that? Is that something that's, you know, are there dozens or hundreds or thousands of cases like this a year, or is it down to a few? What's well, it depends upon which level you look at. So it's there, there's not going to be a Siemens every year. Right. And for the last three to four years, the Department of Justice's position has been that if you get a declination, e.g. 
If you get a non-prosecution agreement or deferred prosecution agreement, then you will not have to have a monitor. So the previous administration looked as a monitor as a punitive thing, right? and it was not a thing to be helpful. Um, last week at the ABA, the American Bar Association White Collar Crime Conference, the Deputy Attorney General, um, Lisa Monaco, gave an update on DOJ policy. Okay. And uh, one of the key points that she uh, reiterated is that, well, for the last three to four years, monitors have not been used by the Department of Justice. Immediately, the DOJ is rescinding that policy, and they believe having monitors are a good thing because they extend the reach of the DOJ, and they help clients who have problems with ethics and compliance. They help them do a better job, right? and they help hopefully cut down on recidivists second and third and fourth time offenders like a Wells Fargo that keeps getting dinged. So one of the things they're going to consider is that you need help. If you're in a position where you've had to settle a DPA or an NPA with the government, it means your ethics and compliance are deficient. And if you couldn't do it on your own before, after you've settled with the government, you need somebody to help you and it's not a negative ding. And the end of the game is that compliance programs and monitors are to be judged if they are successful, they're being successful because the companies continue, uh, will not run into trouble. But the companies that successively keep negotiating NPAs and DPAs mean that they're looking at paying those fines as a cost of doing business and they're only giving lift service to being in compliance with ethics instead of trying to make real, true change. Okay, so, so that's remind, a, remind us what an what an uh, NPA and an NCA is, please. So uh, DPA deferred prosecution agreement. Okay. So it means for the term of the monitor, right. 12, 24, 36 months, we're going to give you an opportunity to be a good boy or girl. I see. And if you do that over that time period. The, the it goes away. So it's okay. deferred and then it goes away. Or an NPA non-prosecution agreement says, we'll just, we'll make an agreement right now. We're not going to prosecute you, but you still need to submit reports okay. every six months for the next two to three years. Okay. And so, I assume that it also, I assume that also then the monitor's work also clarifies and helps basically train the people within the organizations to stay compliant ethically as well. Exactly. Okay. All right. Thank so, you for so, clarifying so, that. So that's number one. Uh, it's a reactive. Right. Proactive is I'm in X industry, the airline industry, and I see my competitor had a situation where they were not truthful to the FAA, FAA and my airplanes crashed and people died, but I didn't want to accept uh, responsibility for that. Well, If that's the situation that happened at at, uh, Boeing, maybe there's a situation at Airbus that we should look into. And me being the head of ethics and compliance at Airbus thinks that this would be a worthwhile way to spend our money and to proactively take a look at our ethics and compliance program and see whether or not there might be that same temptation within Airbus that the people at Boeing fell under, that they were putting profits and putting money over safety. So people can do that. And it does not have to be a big corporation. It could be a a small company like that we might meet in Provisors that has a situation where maybe, um, you know, in the past we do work in the, uh, in a vertical, which is called suspension and debarment. This is a situation where a vendor might be providing goods and services to the military, to the Navy, to the army. Right. Uh, and maybe they, a company has been found that they were supposed to supply a certain grade of armor mm-hmm. for a military ship. Right. And instead of giving the goods that they were supposed to deliver, they delivered something that was a half millimeter thicker than it was supposed to be delivered. Now, at that point, if you're the federal government, you don't want to fire the vendor right. because you have to start all over again. 
So you want to negotiate a situation where that vendor will be incentivized to deliver the correct product. So again, it, it could be all sorts of different levels. It doesn't have to be a multi-million or a multi-billion dollar company. It could be a small company, but it could right. be a company that gets into trouble with the regulator. And then our hypothesis is, is that if you want to be proactive, you do that, but you can also be proactive just because a matter of time has gone by, that it's been 10 years since your ethics and compliance program has been updated. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a good thing for you to do, and you might want to bring in an independent third party so you get the perspective that you might be missing because what you know is only what you do inside the company, but you don't know what happens outside how you're perceived by the government regulators and how you're perceived by your competitors. So that is the motivation to do a proactive assessment. Right, and I assume, are there also, are, are there also government bids or, or, or um, large company bids, what they call RFPs, request for proposal, that, that indicate that you must have uh, an ethics monitor on, on hand for your, as part of your business practice? Is that ever, be a, is that ever compliant with an RFP? I haven't seen one like that. I mean, there might be, you know, they ask you to have all sorts of stuff like a business continuity plan right. and things like that. So, but I've never seen it written in uh, as a monitor. They might say mm -hmm. that you need to have an ethics and compliance program. I see. So I wouldn't right. say, you know, you can sometimes have uh, a monitoring expert work with you again. So if we're doing it on, the proactive side, we're more like a consultant, right? but we're not, you know, the monitoring part of the name seems to mean that you need to have somebody literally monitoring you, looking over your shoulder right. for that period that the monitor has been assigned. So it's a little bit less intrusive and less aggressive when it happens on the proactive model, but it's still, regardless of which way you're looking at it, it's the same skill set that we come in and we speak with senior management and we hold focus groups with those people who are below senior management and yeah. might have a different perspective of how things work at the company. Uh, there's usually a, a forensics angle that a forensic company like one of the big four comes in and takes a look and tries to look at how they're doing business and are there issues that you know, maybe uh, somebody in procurement could write checks for $249,000 and $999, but they couldn't write anything for over $25,000. Right. So if somebody's suddenly writing these checks for 24, what did I say? 249,000. Yeah, and they're yeah. writing them yeah. every month and they're right. going to their brother or sister-in-law, Right. you might have an issue. So you know, a, a lot of times when people get caught, you know, it's like Al Capone got caught, right? Not because of what he did, but he got caught because he wasn't paying his taxes. Right. So, so if there's something from the internal audit perspective, that also could take a look at what's happening with your company. And so you look at the information from the, the numbers, and then you also look at it from how people are doing business. And that helps give you a holistic picture of how the company is operating and whether or not they're being ethically compliant. Ethics, are they universal from company to company or do, or do, or perhaps industry to industry? What, how, how, who, who is the arbiter of what's ethical? Um, it's going to be whatever country you're in and whatever law that you have subscribed to. So here in the U S it's a foreign corrupt practices act. There's a special law in France. There's a law in Brazil. There's a law in Canada. So the number one. So they're always gonna, government agencies and the right. laws that regulate well, them. So the emoluments clause, is that something that could be monitored? Uh, it couldn't be monitored, uh, but it is something that is definitely, we've been talking about for the last four plus years about the ethics of, you know, the U.S. government leasing a federal building to a right. president so he can have people come visit him and right. stay at his hotel. There seems to be something fishy going on there, but it was never 
Um, unfortunately, the, the ethics czar who was going to enforce that, I believe, either resigned or was laid off. And there was a lot of situations that got hung up in the court. So an emoluments issue would be a federal issue. I guess if they ever enforced you, uh, enforced it upon you, you, I guess, potentially could warrant a monitor. But in terms of case study, nothing like that has happened yet. So is your business, is Affiliated Monitors the private version of an inspector's general? I would say that might be one way to put it. Um, we do have a former inspector general who uh, worked for both the CIA and the NRO who's on staff. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, th there's two types of skill sets that people in our line of work possess. One of them is that they're attorneys. So a lot of the folks at Affiliated Monitors have worked for the DOJ before in different verticals, whether it's dealing with the antitrust or whether it's dealing with healthcare and anti-kickback laws. So we have those folks. And then the other side of the um, ledger are the folks like our inspector general who used to work, you know, he's a certified uh, fraud examiner and he has an accounting background. So, you know, ultimately you want to have folks who have both skill sets, the skill sets, the legal skill set and the forensic skill set. But, you know, what the company really does is we are very good at going in a company and ferreting out information on how executives behave, how they look at the culture and how that's passed down to people in the middle and people on the front line. Right. And, you know, so it, it is in terms of inspecting what we're doing is about what has happened after the fact. But the thing that we do is once we've figured out how they have acted in the past, now what we try to do is say, where were their weak spots within their policies and procedures? Right. Where right. were they able to exploit weaknesses? Mm -hmm. And so not only are we retroactively looking at what they've done, but we want to, for the future, help them write policies and procedures that make sense to the best way for best practices for them to conduct business. And then we also want to instill that message through the top, middle, and the front line of the organization. Because sometimes, again, like we've I've said a few times, people pursue profits and don't pursue the right way to do business. And sometimes people get hurt and sometimes people die. Right. So those are the things that we need to try to ferret out. And sometimes there needs to be a change in leadership to bring on and make a commitment to having an ethical culture. And sometimes there needs to be a change in policies. And to give an example, there was a company that we were working for that was a global infrastructure company. Yeah. And but I'm, glad you bring up, I'm glad you're bringing up global because I want to ask you. Yeah. A question about global networking for a second. So um, in terms of what they had done is they had bribed different governments across the world. Right. And I was there to help do some interviews with a company, with um, a part of the group that was based in Panama. Okay. And what happened was the, there was like a whole house cleaning of people who worked at the company because they were dirty. And as part of the company reforming itself, they wanted to get rid of those bad apples and they brought in new younger employees who were not part of the regime. And we said to them, how does it make you feel that the company you are working for now yeah. had problems with ethics and compliance and they fired everybody? How can you come to work with this company? What does it make you feel? And they said, we feel so blessed that the new management does not want to put us in the position of right. having to accept bribes. And they've decide, decided that we are not going to do any more public works projects for the government of Panama. So the only work we're going to have you try to solicit for us is to work with private businesses here in the city. So whereas you could think that's a negative by instilling these new workers who weren't tainted, right they felt that this was a good thing. And that was how management was able to reconstitute the company, 
how they got off their monitorship with us. And then they were eventually sold to another company. So the people who own the initial business were able to clean it up and then still extract some value out of it as it was spun off to another company. Did you expect that to be their answer or did you expect it to be the other way around? No, I expected it to be the opposite. So right. Was, yeah. So, right. So, and, and it might very well have been with a different group of people, but the leadership gave the right messaging across and, and planted the picture for what the future would bring. And so that goes down to communication from the top down, which is what you said a second ago. You said that you like to bring in leadership and then you like to bring in the rank and file. Is there ever a time when the leadership, you know, I've seen it many times in my career where the leadership says the right things, but because of a variety of pressures of different sorts, they, they don't personally practice what they what they preach, and so it creates confusion among the troops. Have you have you seen that? Is that a, is that a, is that something you see? And is it a, is it a common common issue? Yeah, it, it, it's a common worry because people right. talk the talk, but they don't necessarily walk the walk. And the other thing is that oftentimes, especially if it's a public company or some company that's really large and has a board of directors, you know, leadership might be on board, bring you in, and then leadership might change for because they're not the company itself might be not performing and then you have to then do a, a top you have to do an upside down implementation at that point i assume you have to bring in the leadership to, to you know to, to follow what you've been putting in place that well must- i i think that what's happening now is that there is so much happening out there with esg and different things that the board environmental social and government so boards now want to figure out, well, if I am doing business ethically, how does it affect the share price, right? And you right. get, like, um, I think I read a headline today that Google is is uh, pursuing another opportunity with the U.S. government to provide computer resources. Right. And I bet, three, I think three years ago, Google employees protested and said, we didn't want you going after this government contracts. So that's something that, that, you know, your board of directors is not only going to want to be, have diversity, equity, inclusion. Yeah. So there are all these things here that now kind of bubble up around ethics and compliance and your chief compliance officer. So now they're suggesting that people who are on the board have experience in ethics and compliance, or maybe a board member it wouldn't hurt to have somebody from a big four person be on a board because they could understand accounting and internal audit. So all these things are now becoming prevalent and you're not going to be able to skate by. And if you, if you don't get on board, it's going to be a position where the company and the stakeholders and the shareholders are going to start losing money. And when money's at risk, things change pretty quickly. So is there is there an ethics equivalent to gap accounting general accepted accounting practices? Is there an, an ethics equivalent to that? I wouldn't say per se there's an ethics equivalent, but it's again, it's going to be an issue where their company might reveal its deficiency. And because of if they're being loose with their accounting, the question that it would ask if I'm a regulator is, what else are they being loose with? And right, right, right. one of the things to talk about a few minutes ago when I was talking about the DAG Lisa Monaco, yeah. one of the other changes they're doing is they're saying, if your company is being investigated for a certain thing, we're going to take a look at everything that your company has done. So maybe they have a problem with the SEC or maybe they have a problem, Securities and Exchange Commission. Maybe there's another regulator that has nothing to do with this issue that we're looking at company X about, but now we wanna see how company X did this and were they straight with their other regulators? Because if they had issues with their regulators and now they're having issues with us, again, maybe it runs a lot deeper and we have to look at this company because they might have a problem with dealing with regulators. So that was exactly where I was going with um, when we were talking, when you, I said I had global questions. So if I've got a compliance issue in country A and I'm doing business and I know that they're doing business in the, in country B, do you then engage your counterparts in other countries to, uh, to work as a, as a, a holistic 
solution to compliance and of ethics? And my answer would be it happens more on the prosecutorial side. Gotcha. So you have. Um, so are you saying the, that DOJ in the United States might contact their counterpart in Argentina? In Canada or Argentina right. or right. whatever. Right. So, so, and what's interesting now is that when they make these multi-billion dollar settlements, like there was a settlement between uh, Airbus in the U.S. and France uh, and then I also believe in England and Germany because the partners of the of Airbus resided in those three different jurisdictions. So in the past, the U.S. might have taken all of the um, penalties, and now they might only take 20 or 30 percent, and they let the penalties being paid in the jurisdiction where the issue was. So it, it happens that, you know, just because you get charged for a crime in the U.S., if you've done, um, you know, if there's a nexus, meaning that, you know, funds electronically crossed into another jurisdiction, right. you might be, be um, liable on, yeah, SOL. <laughs> SOL. Refer to the earlier part of our, our discussion, SOL, yeah. in case you're wondering. One of my best referral sources is an attorney. Okay. Whether they're a white collar crime attorney, whether they do transactions in the military, whether they're an IP attorney, whether they're an antitrust attorney. So the way that I would get engaged is that uh, an attorney has a client that has a potential issue with ethics and compliance, and then they would recommend that they speak to us either again in response to what they're doing or if it's proactive. But okay. at that point, you know, the lawyer would bring us, we would get engaged by the lawyer and we would have, we would be under privilege. So everything that we discovered would be controlled by the client's attorney. And then they would decide whether or not they make that work product available to any prosecutor if things go that way. So that begs the question for me, do you, uh, does your company act as expert witnesses for lawsuits? Um, very infrequently. Again, okay. there's there's a certain swim lane that we stay in. Right. And our lane is helping people have ethics and uh, are ethically compliant processes and procedures. And we, when we do that, we help them stay out of trouble. Whereas an expert is in there, an expert's almost kind of taking sides. And if you yes, we were right. an, ex, an expert witness, that would take away from our independence and impartiality. And that's really one of the things that we, we, we say that we're independent monitors. And I see. Furthermore, independent integrity monitors. So if we mm -hmm. ever took sides on a dispute, that wouldn't really help us obtain our independence and objectivity. I understand. How long is a typical engagement? Uh, an engagement could be anywhere from... 12 to 36 months. So usually wow. running concurrent with the term of whatever agreement, but uh, sometimes the clients have been so happy with our work. They ask is there's a way they can continue on with us in a non-regulatory perspective, but just right. to help them with their ethics or compliance, or we've seen people leave companies, go to another company and have gained so much working with affiliated monitors that they bring us in and again in a non-regulatory perspective to help them out. Yeah, a really interesting field. Where do you think uh, the field is going to go with technology? Is technology going to disrupt any part of your, your uh, future? It, it's, it's a great question. And where we see it happening is, you know, when you probably have legal folks on your pod, you talk about predictive analytics and you talk about e-discovery and things like that. And they're hoping that at some point where you have all these different data streams and you're looking at it from the, from the different perspectives that you might all almost have a red light warning system when somebody again starts to make those du duplicative transactions under a certain price or right. they're doing things, they're traveling to Saudi Arabia every month or something like that. But maybe somehow you take the data stream from your travel company and you wanna know anytime somebody travels to a country that's on a watch list. Right. Or you won't know that somebody is 
it's coming up to the end of the year and people start giving holiday gifts and whether or not, you know, your gifts and entertainment are out of whack. So instead of having to have a person manually do that, just imagine if you take all these different streams. So you take your streams from procurement, your streams from travel and entertainment, and you write a program that says, when we meet a sensitivity between this and this range, I want to know. And sometimes, you know, not only will you see where there's a potential problem, but it's also an opportunity for at that moment to have a just-in-time email come reminding you about the tra travel policy and gifts and entertainment. And as we are in December and we're coming up on Thanksgiving and Christmas, please remember that all gifts must be kept below right. the nominal value of $50. Right. And if you're given anything more than that, you need to declare it. So it's an opportunity not only to catch people or to get a leg mm -hmm. up, but it's, yeah. it's, it's also, you know, a little bit, of, it's a little bit scary. It's a little bit big brother, right? My imagination was wandering a little bit and I was envisioning um, some correlation between uh, some AI, uh, artificial intelligence co uh, coordination between my procurement process, who's buying from who's, who's selling, and my personal uh, social media, whereas maybe uh, maybe the person I, person that works at the company that I'm buying from is related to one of my friends on Facebook, and some and that and that you know that correlation that that when those when those two uh, data streams intersect. It, you know, it raises a red flag that someone has to take a look at. I can see that that technology probably exists right this second if it's just employed. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely, like you said, if we look into our, our crystal ball, it, it's the way that it's going to happen. And just kind of like to tie back to an earlier thing, when I wanted to get out of the translation business, because I felt it was a bit of a race to the bottom that way. Right, right. Machine translation getting better, and then they would sell a product, which is a a hybrid of machine within human oversight and correction. Yeah. Suddenly I'm not getting 18 cents a word or 14 cents a word. I'm getting two or three cents a word. And most people that they might be cheaping out and doing it on Google translate. So there does not seem to be a lot of margin there for human translation. So just like you oh, have yeah. humans doing investigation and looking for those, um, those data streams, if there's a way to combine those things, I, I'm sure it, it's gonna happen. And then the question is, is does the decision get passed at that same moment or do you have an opportunity to potentially cure the situation and say, right. you know, this was a one-off or you know you're gonna be doing a deal with a, a relative, you might wanna go to your ethics officer and say, I understand in our policies and procedures, that there's a conflict of interest statute that I agreed to. Mm -hmm. I have a uh, hypothetical situation. If I did business with this individual, would I be in violation of my conflict of interest? Oh, interesting, yeah. So you can ask, get an opinion before you do it. And just because you were considering doing it doesn't mean you did anything wrong. Right. But if you and do you it and then ask for forgiveness instead of, or rather beg for forgiveness instead of ask for permission, this would be one of those situations where it would have been better to, uh, you know, ask for forgiveness first than. And if done right, you might find a path of being able to do that business just because you, yeah. might, you might have something with an arm's length. You can, you can bring in somebody else who can look at it as an arm's length transaction and make sure it's the best value. And that's what we want. Um, so we know how to get a hold of you. It's affiliatedmonitors.com and you're J, the initial J Rosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. This will all be in the show notes. Um, I really found this really fascinating, Jay, and I really appreciate you being on the podcast. Um, and I look forward to hearing, uh, there's probably going to be a lot of questions. We're probably going to get some feedback. So I'll probably circle back to you on some of this. If that's okay with you. That'd be great. And, uh, I apologize for my TLAs, my three letter, uh, <laughs> acronyms, but you know, I, I'm in the alphabet, uh, soup business, but yeah. uh, Joel, it's been a real pleasure. And, uh, if you get enough of those questions co collected and we need to do uh, a part two, I'd be happy to come back. Okay, that's great. Parenthetically, by the way, I love how you uh, explained what SOL was, but you didn't explain <laughs> what, what uh, 
NPA was or whatever the ESG. Yeah. <laughs> no, I really, really enjoyed it. We got a little humor to something that doesn't have a lot of humor in it. So that was helpful too. Thanks very much. Appreciate you being on the podcast. Jay, thanks so much. I learned a lot. Not surprised uh, when I met you offline. I knew that you'd be a fascinating guest and have a lot to offer. So thanks for taking the time to be on Small BizCast. The hard work of consulting with small businesses is often very challenging and often it's very exciting. Next on Small BizCast, Nick Warner of Nick Warner Consulting and I work with Chaz Volk of Mr. Thrive Media. Here's a sneak peek. That empathy aspect is something that I think we need to communicate more within the network as well and help them understand why we're introducing this academia uh, as well. I think that that would be incredibly pivotal and for the sake of appealing to ethos, path, uh, pathos and logos, tapping into the pathos in a much more impactful way because pathos is what really grabs people in in the form of art and communication. I agree. It's really similar to you hear people that are inventors and some invent product and go find the market and others have, see a problem and develop a product to it. I think you've built a model where 255 people that are loyally following participating tells you you've got something going. Small BizCast drops every other Tuesday. Follow us on our socials for business tidbits and special offers. Thanks again for our sponsors, the Miller Haga Law Group and Mercury Document Imaging. And remember to support Fit for the Cause. And of course, thanks to my producer, Chaz Volk of Mr. Thrive Media. Couldn't do it without you. Thank you so much for listening. Hot dog. It's a wonderful life.